Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, an associate professor at Rhode Island College, and I'm joined today by Brian and Dale. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but they are the co-hosts of the Lab Out Loud podcast. And last month I was on their show, and so now this month they're on our show. So um, Brian, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself first? Sure. Well, thank you. Um, My name is Brian Bartell, and I am... I'm a science educator. I started (laughs) teaching science, high school science in, well, 1998. So, I mean, we can actually say like last century, right? Um, And I taught science in the classroom for uh, about 15 plus years. And currently I'm working with um, teachers in incorporating technology and not specifically in science education, but I like to pepper in some of those moments where we can we can kind of, you know, like use technology and science at the same time that way. Um, Dale and I are the co-hosts of the Lab Out Loud podcast, and I'll let him describe a little bit of that. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Megan. Megan, it's good to hear your voice again. Uh, my name is Dale Basler. I have a very similar trajectory, uh, career trajectory, I guess, the, with Brian. Um, I started off in 1998 as a science teacher. My area's opposite of Brian's, which kind of worked out well for the podcast. Um, he's a biology chemistry guy, and I'm a physics and earth science uh, teacher. So that's where I spent most of my time is teaching science, um, mostly like your freshman science. And uh, I did a, like a year of earth science, but then I moved to another school. Uh, and then physics. So primarily I was a physics teacher. And then I too transitioned into a technology integration specialist role or a technology coach role in which we're helping that technology integration into the classroom. And for the record, we we actually are in the same school district, so we work together. We're colleagues. Yeah. Um, when we first started doing the podcast, we were across the river, but but now we are on the same side of the river. <laughs> which river? Which the river? Fox River. One of the rivers that actually flows north in the United States. Oh, wow. That's a glacial... Yeah, that's a glacial issue that we can get into the science of that later sometimes. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds fun. Um, yeah. So I mentioned last month we we chatted about the application of cognitive psychology to education. We focused a lot on the scientific method and sort of what our process is in cognitive psychology to sort of figure out what's going on, to be able to inform education. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, Brian and Dale were both surprised about how long it takes us to get from the lab to the classroom. But we talked about some of those reasons why. And I think most of our listeners will be familiar with that. But I'll go ahead and post a link to that conversation in the show notes. And we'll we'll kind of consider that part one. And this will be a continuation part two. So we're, we're back to talk about the scientific method and science practices. Is, uh, from from the, your perspective, right? This feels like one of these uh, episodes where you know you have a network that crosses over from one show into the next, and <laughs> trying to tease you into both podcasts. So it's all uh, multiverse it's, now. It's <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you were on our show, it was a it, first of all, it was a wonderful conversation, and we were enlightened to hear some of the vocabulary that you used, and you talked about you know like oh that's a that's an empirical, um, that's an empirical design that, you know, that's something we can test. That's something that we, you know, we'll set up a control for this. And these are some pieces of vocabulary that Dale and I grew up with in, in our own instruction in science instruction, as well as just in, in some of our science coursework as well. And it, it felt good to say control group. It just felt like, oh yeah, that's, that's, yep, that's what's happening there. Um, 
and you know, Dale and I have definitely taught scientific method back in some of the early days of our career. Um, there has been a shift to, I don't want to say not include, not talking about the scientific method, but I guess maybe expanding how science is done um, through science education. And that, as you mentioned, that's the, the science practices or the science and engineering practices. And so um, in some circles, you might say scientific method and you're going you're gonna to get looks at you, like dirty looks, like how dare you use that uh, outdated and archaic term. But um, I guess from what you had mentioned, it, it's still alive and well, right? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a process. I, I remember um, when I was in maybe it was third, fourth grade, somewhere in there doing some sort of science fair project. And we had to very rigidly follow the scientific method. And I think I did something with like rocks and crystals and some sort of solution. And this is this is how well I remember it, right? So I, I but I do sort of remember the process, which I suspect was the point. Uh, at least I hope that was the point of, of what we were doing. But, but it was very rigid, right? We had to do step one, and then we had to do step two. I remember writing out the hypothesis, and it had to be there in step three. And we moved like that in a very, very specific and rigid way. And I don't know if the difference is social sciences and physical sciences, where or some of those quote unquote hard sciences, right? Where, you know, everything is just a little bit cleaner, a little bit more well-controlled. You drop, you know, if I pick up a rock and I drop it, it's going to fall to the ground. There's not a whole lot of variability in, in what's going to happen. Of course, I know, I see Dale making a face. Maybe it depends on all kinds of different things, right? But but it it's um, at least a little more- <laughs> physics brain, uh, he can't turn that off. Yeah, it's a little more, but it what, seems what to me more- more controlled than um, like kids in the classroom and trying to figure out how they learn. And we definitely know that there are individual differences, right? So um, I, maybe the way we're teaching kids now isn't as rigid as what I'm describing, or maybe that's just sort of what you do when, when they're younger and then they become more nuanced as they get older. Well, I mean, I think we hope it's not as rigid. Sometimes I think it still falls back to this we kind of call it like a cookbook lab it's like all right now step two pour this into there and when you're all done you're like what did i just make you didn't really you weren't part of thinking about the process and and like what are we trying to investigate i think the key thing here is that our students i mean particularly if you're starting with elementary students they're not scientists that's not what we're trying to do we're trying to make sure that they you know they that curiosity they have, we're nurturing that and going through that. So we can allow them to have those curiosities and maybe not follow, you know, form their hypothesis right away. You know, we're, we're allowing all that kind of natural feelings about what they're observing to flourish first and then kind of working towards um, a more research perspective, I guess. Yeah, it, it makes me think of disc- the idea of discovery learning, right? Mm-hmm. So I think some of these lab-based activities and and um, some of the hands-on activities are aimed towards trying to get students to discover some principle on their own. And the idea is that if they can discover it and sort of figure it out on their own, that they'll remember it better. But But we're novices, right, when we're students. Even if we're talking about university level students, we are still novices in the thing that we're learning until we're, you know, we become experts. And novices tend to focus on surface features of things as opposed to the underlying principle. And so, um, you know, 
what I remember from my from my experiment, right? I remember writing out a hypothesis. I remember there was like a rock or a crystal and some sort of liquid. That's it. I don't remember what I discovered or what I was supposed to discover. And that makes uh-huh. sense for a novice. I, I suspect it would be similar now if I was doing some sort of um, physical science experiment because I'm not an expert in that area. So there's got to be some sort of direct instruction, an expert there to make the link between the underlying principle and the the information that's that the the kids are working with. Mm-hmm. And, and that instruction is important, but uh, you know, as Dale mentioned, I think sometimes it's trapped within a, a within a chapter or a unit, and the rigidity also comes from you know needing to be in lockstep. Like, all oh, right, does everyone have a problem? And now we're going to move on to this algorithmic kind of patterning of like, all right, hypothesis comes next. And of course, that's not realistic. It's not <laughs> organic. Uh, obviously, that that inquiry, that natural desire and wanting to investigate should come uh, whenever, I guess, the moment presents itself. Not everyone have a problem. Now everyone have a hypothesis. Um, But as we know, that's not how science happens a lot of times. And it's not, maybe the scientific method is too oversimplified in that way. And it's, you know, there's a lot of different facets within it. And and then it's all all taught within one like you know scientific method. If you want to think about it, is a huge endeavor. But if you teach it within like the the what is science chapter, you're really losing out on opportunities to to dive into those those important pieces. You know, whenever that moment is necessary. And I think like uh, that's why the science practices and science and engineering practices are important for teachers to kind of dabble around the edges you know, little by little. And so I I guess in some ways the scientific method is deconstructed and now you're going to work on this. So the first time you're not, you're not building graphs and tables shouldn't be that chapter one, it should be happening. You know, you should have practice with that so that when you get to, I guess, uh, you know, performing an experiment, it's not like, oh, this is a new thing for me. So that, that might be another piece there that I think is, needs to be adapted. I I think, I always try to emphasize with my students, though, that the description of the silk, you know, the, of the scientific method was our description of what scientists are doing. You know, it's I wanted to emphasize that scientists are human. We're all human going through this process. And so if someone did a piece out of the, of out of order, so maybe they conducted an experiment before they even had a hypothesis because they were tinkering around or it was an accident. It's not like they you know, they were shunned in the science community because, you know, they still experimented around and, and they did that. But those steps, those, I guess, block steps, um, those are summaries of the process. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Sometimes you, I mean, sometimes you don't have a hypothesis or no. you have what we might call competing hypotheses, which, hypotheses, which is great, but basically just means it could happen either way, <laughs> whichever way it happens. <laughs> yeah. That explains whether it's this theory or that theory. That's actually quite a good thing. Um, I remember messing my, around should be, yeah. you know, be. We should be open to that in some some respects. Yeah, I, this is sort of how my brain works all the time. And I, my um, my honors thesis advisor, who was later my PhD advisor, when he was writing letters of recommendation for me to go off um, to graduate school, I did my master's elsewhere. Um, he said I didn't see the letter, of course, but he said that he. Um, wrote about me conducting my own little experiments in the lab. For example, there was a period of time where I was so irritated because different researchers in the lab, it must have been undergraduate research assistants, 
were like taking pens out of other rooms rather than going and checking out new pens, you know, for <laughs> consent forms. And I was so irritated because I'd go in in the morning and set everything up and then go to class and then come back to my room and there would be no pens in there. And I'm like, how is this possible? Um, so I started putting I love where this is going. Yeah, I put red <laughs> pens in one room, green pens in another, blue in another, and would track who was working in each room and then watched where the pens went and narrowed it down. And I was like, all right, these two people are the ones that are stealing the pens. Someone needs to deal with this. And I was just so irritated. And he would he just was laughing at me. I'm like, this is very serious. Okay. I'm trying to run collect my honors thesis data. I don't have time. I'm running around. I'm like a this lunatic. is the scissors at work, Brian. Yeah, in our office, the missing scissors, right? Oh, no. Yeah, but I, I mean, I didn't have an hypothesis. I was like, someone's stealing the pens. <laughs> it's, it, it's not a, you know. Please tell me you have charts and graphs no. uh, with all this information. Like you've 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 uh, plotted it out and everything. I I did because I yes. was like, whoever is doing this, I want them to get. I wanted them to get in trouble, not like big trouble, but I wanted someone to sit them down and explain to them why they could not just steal pens from a different room. <laughs> that it didn't take sort that long. Like- like pets, you see it. what you did? I know. I guess it would have been easier just to like take pens and put them in my bag, but that wasn't the procedure. So right. And I was like, everyone must follow the procedure. Well, data shaming should be part of the scientific method, I think, right? That should be <laughs> using that for revenge or for spite. I mean, come on, right? <laughs> yes, it's all, it was all confidential, of course, but but I, I did tell my advisor who it was and he was like, I don't know what, what to tell you. Just put the pens in your bag. <laughs> I was like, all right. But, I, but we're not supposed to. That's a that's not following the rules. And he was like, it's okay. No one thinks that you are trying to personally steal pens. Like, right. All right, I guess. This would have been hard to get some IRB clearance uh, testing on, on humans, right? Well, I, d- I don't need it because I didn't publish it. Oh, there you go. Uh, so oh. it's okay. Although I guess, I mean, well, I'm not publishing the results. I'm just explaining my procedure. So I assume that that's not the type of thing that that you are instructing teachers in your district to to have students do within the classroom, although it does sound like fun. Well, um, actually, though, I don't think that's too far off the mark, Megan, because the science and engineering practices are going to basically, that could be something that a student investigates. And I think in many ways that while it's not necessarily a full scientific problem, the, you know, the mechanisms and the kind of procedures that you went through would clearly be, I guess, categorized as the science and engineering practices. So I, when I say that, are you familiar with that? Not, not ex- uh, explain it to me just in case. Sure. Um, so the next generation science standards, which is, uh, you know, and it's been out for a, almost a decade now. And these are new standards and they, they kind of, they, they've revolutionized hopefully the way that we teach science education. And again, there's a, you know, scientific method is not necessarily written within these standards, but what we have are scientific and engineering practices. And so some of them are, um, like for instance, one of them is asking questions and defining problems. So instead of learning the whole scientific method in chunks, you would maybe tackle little pieces here and there. And I'm not saying it's, it, you know, all of these together is the scientific method, but these are the practices that scientists, you know, take on. Um, another one would be developing and using models. Um, planning and carrying out investigations. And they don't say experiments necessarily, but investigations, which, hey, who stole my pen? Um, and then and so using math and, and computational thinking, analyzing and interpreting data. Um, so again, all of these pieces in here that um, if you taught it within the scientific method as a whole, again, that might be overwhelming. It's a simplified algorithm, but it's also overwhelming that you can't focus on any one of these pieces well. But 
yeah, if, if there was a student who wanted to investigate missing pens or scissors, you could let them loose on that and then tackle some of these other pieces. Um, some of the other criticisms also come out that there aren't, there isn't room for things like making models or um, encouraging argument. And so that's another piece there. So I'm almost done with reading them. So I'll just keep going. So six would be constructing explanations or designing solutions. Um, and then some of that harks to like the engineering practices there. And then engaging in argument from evidence, which is in some ways maybe what you just kind of described there. Um, and then obtaining, evaluating, and communicating information. So these would be, I guess, what we'd call the scientific, these are the scientific and engineering practices that we want students to continually engage in throughout their, you know, their educational career. Um, but we're not saying that you're just doing the scientific method as one point in time. Um, you're constantly getting at all these pieces um, in, in wherever that might be needed. And it could be um, in a professional scientific setting. It could also be in a very informal uh, piece as well. Um, we, we, the listeners don't know this, but we had a conversation about our cats right before we, we started recording. And, um, and we had talked about, um, you know, our cat behavior and things like that. So we had an older cat who, we had two cats and one of them had uh, a urinary problem, which is very common in older cats and was peeing outside of its litter box. And, and, and unfortunately that was uh, an issue that we had to deal with there. But, um, the, the vet said, well, you can, you know, you can, uh, do a lot of this work and test them all individually. And so, and I said, well, I can get a camera instead. And so I got a, I got a camera and I, I was able to figure that out. So I was like, ha 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 vet, take that. And I, you know, I, I actually like itemized like, okay, so each one of these tests is going to cost this, but the camera costs this. So, uh, this is also my, you know, justification for buying technology, which is a hobby of mine as well. Um, but again, we were able to figure out which cat um, was having the issue and and work on getting that treated. But you can use the camera in the future. You can't use. I mean, I I think that sounds that sounds like something I would do. No, 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 no. We're gonna. Yeah. We're gonna well, we have the right, and that's the other thing. I can't I can't continue to use a a, a urinary test after that. But yes, I oh, do use the camera. And it, the funny thing is, is we call it the kitty camera anyway because we set it off when we're gone inside the house and uh, it, 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 when the kids were younger, it was just a nice way of saying, yes, they're still alive kind of a thing. And then it, it literally was right by the stairwell. So we'd have this joke, cat goes up, cat goes down, cat goes up. And it's amazing to note how many times the cats go upstairs and downstairs. Like uh, you think they don't do anything, but they do. Um, I don't have a graph for that though. Yes. Next time, next time. <laughs> Unprepared, Brian. How dare well, you? I'm just not, I'm not at that level yet. I haven't, uh, I started some of the investigations, but I haven't uh, analyzed the data yet. Dale, tell, tell me a little bit about how you work with, or either of you, I guess, but I, I'm curious how you work with teachers in your districts. That is what you do, right? As coaches, yeah. you're working with mm -hmm. teachers. Yeah. So how do you, how do you work with teachers to explain to them, you know, the best ways to try to instill these principles into the students' minds? Well, for us, we're not doing specific science coaching. It's technology integration. So that will only come up if we were helping a teacher with science. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen a lot um, because of our ELA and math are, I, I would think, are usually always in the main focus. And so a lot of times our technology integration is going to be related to English language arts um, just because they have so many things that point to publishing your work and um, 
expressing your voice. It should cross over, but it it just and sometimes I, mean, it I don't does. know. I don't know about you, Brian, but I just don't think it does enough. And it's probably also me being very biased. I'm looking for science all the time, so I feel like it's never enough. You know, like more, more. Um, but but otherwise, as a as a coach, then I'll, then I would be taking their concern about um, maybe students not being motivated to read in a particular. You know, like maybe they're not a, a fourth grade class is not exploring new reading, and how can we perhaps use technology to motivate them or be a, be a motivator. Um, in that case, we experiment with the idea of like having them create um, book trailers for the books that they've read. And then that kind of allows their peers to kind of show off what they've read in a way that kind of uh, will then kind of hopefully snowball into new readers of new books and things like that. So it's, it's stuff like that. Um, I'm going to be working with a group next week for an opinion piece Again, they're looking at doing a podcast um, to express their opinion writing. Uh, it, it's it's just offering uh, other options of communication, usually, um, for technology integration. That's really neat. I find it fascinating, too, that you mention technology integrating with English language arts more often. I think that's sort of the opposite of, at least I went to Purdue as an undergraduate, which is a, a heavy engineering school, and they sort of... I, I think some of the engineering students thought of themselves as the the science technology buffs and that, you know, the the liberal arts humanities were just like coloring with crayons and that was it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if I was working with, um, you know, the, the teachers that, you know, when I was a physics teacher, I was doing a lot of technology integration, but that was sensors and probeware and um, video assessment, video camera assessment. So we, you know, it's not cats, Brian's kitty cam, but we would, as a physics teacher, video record an event and then use, um, you know, like software to analyze the positions of objects and stuff like that. So certainly as, as you get, you know, as you progress through the grade levels, you can do more with those kinds of areas. But I think, you know, English language arts is front and center for our elementary students. And and so is math. And those are, you know, those are, (laughs) those things are really kind of are necessary to be in place for the next steps. So I think it's because of the level I'm in. There's been some updates in some of those areas for the standards as well. And and particularly with the ELA, English Language Arts, there has been a renewed focus on how do you communicate to others? And so how do you, um, how do you make multimodal pieces of communication in, in the digital world? And so it's not always just writing a paper anymore, but it is how do you communicate with other media? So there, there's language that talks about recording audio and there's language that talks about, um, you know, babe, interacting with others online, things like that. And so those are ways that we we will sometimes, I guess, encourage the use of technology to, to meet those standards in the ELA world. And they don't have to be in an English capacity, but it's the it's the basis of how do we communicate as a function of the ELA standards that way. In math, there's also some renewed focus about using technology, um, and it, it could be, you know, using tools to, to measure and, and analyze as well. Um, but it also is, there's an encouragement of how do you, not just getting to the answer, but how do you encourage students to show what they know or to to basically prove what they know. And some of that might mean that they are recording themselves explaining how to solve a problem or using some kind of like an online whiteboard to kind of to showcase that as well. And so uh, we do see some of that and, and maybe we need to see more of that actually. But 
um, those might be some of those areas that we would we would push into in the classroom. I think science education also as a whole for elementary is the field that our elementary teachers are least comfortable with too. So naturally they're going to come to us with their more familiar things first, I think. Um, that is a, I mean, we just had an interview with a guest that works with pre-service teachers and that's still an area where science is the, you know, because our elementary school teachers are teaching all the subjects, right? And the science comfort level is the one of the lowest and it's an area to work on. It's interesting. I would think that, and, and again, I mean, this is just me guessing. And I, every time I think I know how elementary schools and those kinds of things work, I, I learn something new about the intricacies that shows me that I, I don't know all of the ins and outs, right? This is why we need experts in all different areas. But I would think that if I, you know, was having to teach all of the areas, which I, I got to hand it to elementary teachers, that's a, that's a difficult thing. Um, I teach in my very specific area. I think that that's uh-huh. probably easier in many ways. But if I had to teach all the things, I'd probably want coaching help in the areas that I felt least confident in. But is that is that just a completely naive statement? I think that's I think we have some of that, Brian. Do you think we have that with our math coaches now? So we have we math have more coaches of that. that are we don't like so for example, we don't have science coaches or STEM coaches or anything like that. At least Maybe not that, yet. Yeah, at least not yet. Maybe that'll emerge. There is a push for introducing more STEM, um, even just space for STEM, because, you know, it takes additional stuff and equipment and and storage and stuff like that. So um, we may see that emerge. I think, you know, these are generalities about my own school district. I I do see those commonalities when I talk to other people in other school districts and things like that. So it is possible I'm probably seeking out the likes, you know, the same things. But I don't recall a lot of conversations about science being the on the forefront of that i think um a theory i have is we, you know we test the the ela and math areas first so that might be driving some of it too well, that, that is driving sense. some of it i was just trying to be nice <laughs> <laughs> um, i don't want to say it is but yeah i think it is <laughs> one of the areas that we struggle with with technology integration is that it's just so new there's not a lot of research-based evidence to say you should do this or you shouldn't do this. There's a lot of just, you know, uh, we're going to try to do what works. And I'm not going to say we're, we're doing things that are helping or harming kids. And I'm sure there's much more in the middle there. But we don't have a lot of good um, research-based pedagogy with technology. Um, but one thing I'm thinking of is we have a lot more devices that came out of as a result of the pandemic. So we have a lot more devices in student hands, whether or not they're being used or not. Um, and I see this with my own children who are high school age now is um, there's less of a, I guess, uh, uh, there's less of a use of paper for for taking notes and scribbling down and and maybe they're taking digital notes uh, or maybe they're finding other resources online but you know when i do as a technology person i usually just i bring a i bring up i'm holding up a, a I'm holding up field notes i don't know if you know use those at all but i take notes a lot with field notes and these uh you know to me i take notes as a process of remembering not necessarily to write it down and remember rarely do i go back all the time and, and look for these notes but the process of it helps me remember. Um, what can you say to research about writing writing things down versus typing things down? Yeah, so there there is research on that, and we have a couple of blog posts on that. Um, the consensus 
it, there's there's some mixed evidence, but the consensus seems to be that handwriting notes is better than taking notes digitally on a computer. But the reason behind it seems to be more that when you write, when you handwrite, you can't write as fast as say somebody is talking. So you tend to have to sort of think about, okay, what's the most important thing? What's the idea that I want to put down on the page and then put that down? Whereas when you're typing, it lends itself more to transcription in some ways, mindless sort of just typing the words that you're hearing. Mm. And even if you instruct students not to do that, there still is this hesitance, their tendency to try to put as much down as possible and they can get away with it when they're typing. At least at least um, college age students can. And so maybe it wouldn't matter as much for younger kids because they're, you know, if they're just learning to type, they're not as fast. Although that's probably an extra working memory task that we don't need them focused on. But um, the idea is that the handwriting is better because you're more likely to kind of integrate and put things into your own words when you handwrite. If you could somehow force yourself to do that with the computer or a device and make sure that you're not distracted by notifications and pop-ups and all of these other things that distract us on our devices, in theory, then typing would be fine. But that's just harder to produce. Is some of that instructional as well? Like in the sense that we've changed a lot of how we instruct, um, partly, you know, less less of a lecture, but I also see a lot of teachers uh, making presentations, we'll just say PowerPoint, but making the presentations in, in bite-sized chunks that they're writing down things that they want you to copy. In the sense that as we are, you know, making instruction, we are sometimes writing things down that we want kids to write down. Like if you copy down these notes exactly, you'll get everything that you need to. Um, but that, that, you know, when you had a chalkboard or even a transparency, I'm aging myself here, um, that always, that didn't always happen. And so you had to, as you were writing it or speaking it as a teacher, the uh, students had to kind of choose what they wrote. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess why, why do we want the students to copy? What is, is it because we want them to have it later? Or is it because we think that the act of copying is going to help in some way? I don't think that conversation is had enough. I mean, it, did you ever see the movie The Paper Chase? No. Oh, you have to watch. The, the Paper Chase is something that my science methods teacher had us watch. And it was all about getting the... It's basically, I think it's a high, uh, some fancy college. And they're all after the the answers, you know? And the whole movie just becomes so focused. It's like a heist movie on getting the answers that... You know, it, it's just like a little, you know, model for that horrible relationship, te- teacher-student relationship of I have the stuff and now you can have the stuff, you know, and they wind up breaking in, I think. And this, it was great. And it sometimes reminds me of maybe, again, the notes come from the instruction, which the instruction may also be a function of what is the assessment going to look like. So if you copy down these notes exactly you'll have all the key pieces for the upcoming assessment. And and hopefully some of that's changed, but that's not always the, the way it should be. Um, but that's... That annoys that's, me. I watch my own children. If they do that, I'm like, well, what's the point of going to school then? Especially when we were having like COVID problems. Um, you can do that at home. Like, you know, those kinds of things. That to me, does it seems like a complete entire waste of time. I mean, to me, so if I want my students to have something written... First of all, I don't 
I, and this could be just a different, I mean, I teach at the university level. I just give it to them typed if I want them yeah. to have it because there's no reason for them to copy things down. I encourage them not to copy anything down because I give them the slides um, and, and I give them the slides because I want them to stop and to listen and to think. And if they're going to put anything down on notes, it should be a connection that they've made or an example they thought of or a question they have, something like that. I don't want them to write down or, or maybe a phrase that I say that is particularly important to them or particularly meaningful, but I don't want them just to write down what I have written down. But I guess for me, the point of them having the notes is that later on, at the beginning, they can look at the notes to refresh, but then in theory, they should be putting those notes away, trying to retrieve the information and make connections, come up with their own examples on their own, and then they can use the notes to double check to make sure that they were accurate as sort of a, a, a feedback mechanism. Um, and so there would be no, for me, there's no reason to have them writing it down. Although there is an art to taking notes. And like I said, what should you write down? What should you not write down? And I think the answer is, you know, copying doesn't make sense or even having in a book highlighting phrases doesn't really make sense unless you only highlight maybe one or two things, but that's not what happens, right? You end up with like half the page is highlighted. And so a what's yellow the book? Right. So, um, so I think that, you know, the art of note taking is important, but it, it, it is lost. It's lost a little bit. And I'm not sure it, I'm not sure the computer versus paper and, and all of that really matters too much. It, it's more that process and we need to move children or students away from the transcribing and trying to get everything down. Mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my take. But I, I mean, maybe, I, you know, younger kids are still working on their handwriting, working on, you know, writing things out, spelling and in that way. So, and so maybe there are, there's value there that is not, you know, necessary at the university level, at least most of the time. It makes me wonder too about being with, uh, going through a pandemic and a lot of teachers pivoting towards video instruction and and making a video for students to, I guess, ingest or, or consume later on. Um, and some of them have probably made new, better ones, and some of them have kept some of those pieces there. Um, do you have any insight for us about, I guess, uh, video instruction versus face-to-face -face instruction? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it matters all that much. Although um, students need to attend in order to learn. You, If you're not attending to what's going on, then you're not going to learn. Principles behind learning shouldn't matter, whether in a virtual environment or a physical environment, except that if if you feel like you can't learn on Zoom, say, then perhaps you might sort of make it such that you can't. It becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or if you really are very distracted by the computer and all of the things around us, um, I do think that there is something to um, getting up and moving around. So for middle school, high school, university, getting we call up those and transitions. Between, yeah. yeah, getting up and moving between classes and even shifting the context of the room that you're in. Um, with elementary kids, I don't think that you would just have them sit in one spot all day. <laughs> At least I've never seen a classroom work that way, <laughs> right? They should be up and moving. And I think it's harder to in instruct the kids to do that when they're not physically with you. Um, but 
But in terms of just sort of how we process information cognitively, it shouldn't really matter. Um, and so I do use videos in my teaching. I, I All of my classes currently are a flipped classroom model where they have lecture videos that are broken down into small chunks. How big a chunk is sort of depends on what we're talking about. Some of them might even be pushing 20 minutes. Some of them are like four minutes. It just depends. But it's broken up into little pieces and I label them meaningfully so that it's easier to find what they're looking for if they want to go back. They're supposed to watch those lecture videos and then come to our synchronous class. So I, I'm still teaching online um, a synchronous Zoom course. We have a mixed um, mixed formats right now. And so I'm just one of the one of the online people. But um, they then we then work with the material. So I ask them questions. They ask me questions. They work in small groups to answer prompts. We come up with examples. We work with the material and I engage them in some very low stakes retrieval practice um, in, in the classroom. It's actually no stakes when we're in the classroom and then they do have to take a quiz later that's pretty low stakes. Um, and so in that way, I think the videos work really well. But again, if a student... It, they have flexibility to watch those videos when they want, but with that flexibility comes responsibility. Some of them are good at this and are good at structuring out when they should watch them and good at making sure that they're watching and they're paying attention and that they're distraction free. Others are not as good at this um, and will tell me, I can't seem to get the videos to stream at two times speed because I'm trying to get through it faster. I'm like, I don't want you to watch it at two times speed. Um <laughs> slow it down if you need to, but don't speed me up. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it depends. And this gets back to your question earlier, Brian, like what, what technology is good? Why don't we have a lot of science on, you know, the specific technologies? And I think it's because it's not that the technology is a tool. So it all gets, it gets to sort of underlying what are, what are the processing processes that we're engaging in that's going to help learning. And you can ask, does that tool promote that certain type of processing? Doesn't really matter what the technology is. And we could, I mean, we could test all of the different technologies individually, but I think that that would be really inefficient. It's much easier to think, okay, these are the processes that need to happen. And then as a practitioner or, you know, coaches working with these practitioners in the classroom, how do we make sure that we are engaging in those good processing while we're using whatever technology we're comfortable with. Right. So sense? yes, this makes a lot of sense. And I think this needs to be said a lot more right now because I've been hearing, you hear it on evening news. I swear Dr. Fauci said it like online, basically saying we know now that online learning or virtual learning doesn't work. Like there's been a lot of people saying, well, virtual learning you know, that just didn't work and all, you know, and we got to get kids in the classroom and all those kinds of things. And there's a part of me that's like, okay, sure. And then I was like, but I know prior to the pandemic, when you go to college, there's a lot of components that look like what we did during virtual learning, even though your class met face to face, you better be able to use a learning management system. You better be able to listen to some of the lectures offline. Um, you better be able to do submit, you know, your, your viewpoint in a forum, those kinds of things. All of those things are still there. What we're saying when we say online learning didn't work is where it's really code for some of the problems that you just talked about, Megan, like, um, 
online di- learning didn't work when students were distracted, when they were in the same environment all the time, when they didn't have an adult guiding them. When, when you know. their parents had lost their job and they were not food secure. I mean, this is yes. When there's eight kids trying to do, you know, synchronized classes in one small apartment. I mean, these are all real pieces that I think are ignored. Yeah, yeah. So all that online virtual learning, remote learning, all of those things, those kind of components, we have to kind of slice apart what we're really talking about here. And I, I feel like way to my my worry is next it'll come like a teacher's gonna have like a flipped classroom or something or like i'm sorry but my kid cannot do online and that i don't think that's a realistic preparation for not even post um secondary education like i'm not even thinking about kids are going to go to college after that i mean i am but i look at my own high school children who work jobs he came home and he's got to watch online videos for noodles and company and and learn how to do all of that. And it's the same thing. And I'm like, that looked like online learning to me. I actually take your point that way too, Megan, that, you know, we maybe we don't need to be thinking about like, how does technology benefit learning? But just the fact that we know that this is part of our students' lives that will be expected of them outside of the classroom. And whether that is in a, a a post-secondary kind of environment, whether that is in noodles training, or yeah. this is just part of the way of the world. And so uh, there's many there's many times that we are asked about like, well, what's the value of this technology? What's the return on investment? Um, are We should start seeing scores go up because we have all these devices or we bought you all these iPads. Why why don't we see a magical shift in, in learning? And, and, and that might be the wrong question. And it might more need to be like, well, these are just the standard tools that that the world has dictated this is what we this is how we do life. Yeah, and I, I to clear, I mean, there's definitely a difference between university students engaging in online learning and like kindergartners. The kindergartners, I, I think, really do need to be in the classroom. If if for I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but if for no other reason, then they need an adult helping them manage the technology. And you know, not all children have parents who can just basically quit their job or somehow manage to put their kid through. Ki- kindergarten and manage them on the computer and do their full-time job, right? So there's definitely, there are definitely reasons why the younger kids in particular probably should be in face-to-face. As the students get older and can start to take a little bit more responsibility, I I do think it depends. Some students, I think, thrive better in a face-to-face environment than in an online environment, in part because of some of these things like distraction. And there is definitely a social component to school that is very important. Um, And I wouldn't want to, you know, I don't want to strip that away from from kids because it's not all just learning the scientific method, right? But when people (laughs) say things like, look, we tried it. Online learning clearly doesn't work. My science brain is going off thinking about basically our conversation last month where we talked about control groups and random assignment. And we're not actually comparing online learning pre-pandemic to in face-to-face learning pre-pandemic. We are comparing the situation before in 2019, when things were all hunky-dory, I mean, not really, but relatively speaking, right? We weren't in the middle of a pandemic. You know, the the joblessness wasn't the, the at the mm-hmm. level that it is. And then throw us into this really stressful environment where we are 
masked all the time and we're stressed all the time. And, and I don't think masking is a problem, but it, it does add this extra layer of stress and kind of remembering. Literally. Yeah. And try, yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like all of these different pieces and just fatigue and exhaustion and, and knowing why we're on Zoom, right? If I was on Zoom mm-hmm. by choice, and actually Rhode Island College now has a, a pretty good um, mix of formats. And I find my online students are doing so much better because I know that they've chosen to be online as opposed to being forced. That makes a difference. That's deep. I never even thought of that. Like when this all started, we all like, well, we all know why we have to do it this way. That's different than I'm choosing to do it this. Right. Yeah. Well, and just, I mean, who was, who's happy about COVID? It's not me. I I don't, I mean. Pharmaceutical companies. Um, Well, (laughs) they were not. None of, none of who are sponsoring us. But um, I also think I'd love to see questions coming out of the pandemic that look at evaluating technology in the lens of, uh, did this did this allow for a, a deeper participation of students who may feel, I guess, uh, isolated in the classroom more? Um, and we, you know, Dale and I have noticed this from, you know, when we were back in the classroom that we dabbled with a lot of technologies that are, are I guess, more commonplace now. But you know, ways that we saw some students blossom in an online environment, but were uh, were very quiet and withdrawn in the classroom. And, you know, digital environment can allow for, uh, I guess, an even playing field that way. And, yeah. and I'd love to see what the research is going to say in that in the future. We know people have individual differences, right? So, you know, when I drop a rock, it falls unless, you know, something else happens, right, Dale? But in the classroom, it's like, it's like this kid is going to soar and this kid is going to fall only if we don't motivate them. And this kid, I mean, there's all these different pieces. Preferences, not learning styles. <laughs> Preferences, exactly. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think, the, not to keep harping on the pandemic, but... Maybe it's the airing of grievances against the pandemic. Um, but I've also We've been now reached seeing, the Festivus poll part, portion yes. of it. Yeah. <laughs> I've also seen in um, education circles now this discussion of um, after the pandemic, look what the pandemic did to us. And there's a the science teacher in me says, well, wait a minute. How do we know that wasn't going to happen anyways? So um, I recall that suicides um we're on a uh, we're trending upward prior to the pandemic and now we have research afterwards about um adolescent you know in, in that area and that you know blaming the pandemic on it and maybe there is a connection there but sometimes i i am now starting to question is that a is that actually due to the pandemic or is it was it going to happen anyways um attention habits a lot of teachers are t- telling me um these are generalizations, but teachers have told me like, you know, these kids don't seem to have the same attention they had before or, or those kinds of things. And da, 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 pandemic. How do we know that? That's. And we don't, right. I mean, mm-hmm. and this is not a controlled experiment and, and that, you know, there's a lot of things that we can study in a controlled experimental way. And there's a lot of things that we can't. And this is, I mean, you can't randomly assign people to be in a global pandemic or not. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You can't go back and do a pandemic control group, right? No, no. I mean, there are definitely ways of doing it, you know, different methodologies, different statistical analyses that can be done to try to approach um, an answer to the question. Is it, we 
don't just have to throw our hands in the air and say, well, we can't answer any questions about the pandemic, right? If we don't have a perfect experiment, then the end. But it does take um, more finesse, I think. And I it, th- those are the types of analyses that I'm not actually fully prepared to do. It's not that's not the type of work that I do. But I, I do think anybody who's making statements about what the pandemic has done to us really needs to have done their research. And I don't mean, you know, looking at a couple of things online. I mean, really like working with data, looking at past trends, running these statistical models and and trying to make a best estimate of how much the pandemic exacerbated or created certain types of problems. Um, And that's a, gosh, we could talk about this forever, right? Because when people Uh say I've done my research, that doesn't mean the same thing to a scientist as it does to the average person, right? I've been using, in our last conversation, we talked about that a little bit. And I've been using, um, Megan, what you suggested is like, um, my daughter said, I researched this. I was like, "Uh, uh-uh, you looked it up online? (laughs) <laughs> and we've been switching switching that all the time. And then the other day she said, well, well what actually is research then? And I was like, oh, we're here. <laughs> Empirical questions. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like perfect. <laughs> we When we did talk last, one of the things we were going to dive into, and we, we don't have time today, is to think about the influence of uh, of companies and organizations on, I guess, uh, their own their own research and products that – you know, we have a, you know, we have a lab that investigates this and this is what we found. We see that a lot in learning where there might be a product that's saying uh, this does, uh, I'm not even going to throw out names, but we see this a lot with some technologies that say that, you know, in a controlled environment, a classroom setting, this, we saw, and oftentimes the, the output is we saw test scores jump so much. And so, um, but again, these are, I, I the, think we, the, yeah, in our last interview, we talked about like, I basically don't have any I'm having trust issues with every vendor I talk to because um, maybe that's healthy, I guess. But when they bring forward research, I'm skeptical. Immediately going like, who did that research? Was it just you guys that did the research? Um, All of those kinds of questions kind of flood in. And then thinking about our conversation we had with you last time, like knowing the amount of time it takes how could you possibly have enough information about this being so new? And then I just kind of fall apart because I don't know (laughs) what to trust anymore. (laughs) And I think, I think having a distrust of, of that type of, of any research and always asking where did this research come from? Who funded it? Why did they fund it? You know, was it approved by this organization? Was it peer reviewed? I mean, I think that's all valid and questions that we should always ask. Um, I don't think you would necessarily need to go through the same long process that I talked about last time if all you wanted to know was, does my app work? Yeah. You don't need to know the why necessarily, and maybe theory contributed to the why, maybe not. But if you just want to know if your app works, you can, you know, put it into classrooms, randomly assign some students to use it or not, or more likely, you know, randomly assign different classrooms to use the material, use the app or not. And then you need some fancier statistical modeling, multi-level modeling, but in, in order to account for the fact that two kids in one classroom are more similar to each other than two kids in two different classrooms, just because their teachers are um, they're, you know, they have the same teacher so that it's no longer an independent assignment, but, um, 
you could do that and you could do that in a semester. You're just not going to have that same level of like, why did this, why did this process produce learning? Um, and, and maybe these vendors have more money to do this type of research. Maybe they can get into the classroom a little easier. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I do think it's always a good idea to question where information is coming from. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that we do as coaches too. Um, when there's very, I think I was on this rant yes last week in our office, Brian, about like, you know, people just want it to be free. They want it to be brand new and, you know, like technology integration isn't good enough if it's, you know, the kids have already done it. And I'm like, but no, what do you try? What do you want the kids to learn? Like to, sometimes we have to just go back with the teacher and say, well, wait, what's your goal here? Why would you, why would you even go down this path? So last or two weeks ago, um, we had students doing book talks, describing the book they read, what, what they liked about the book and kind of recommending it to others. So they're, you know, young kids and they're like, well, we're going to have them record this. We're going to have them do it in a green screen. We're going to do all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, these are second graders. What's the payout for them to do it on a green screen? What's, what are you trying to assess? Do you want them to be able to know how to layer and, you know, key out a color and like, that's not a goal. Um, for that, the, the goal is for them to talk about, you know, to, to, to review their reading, and so that kind of stuff, we're always kind of talking people out of technology, which is weird because we're supposed to be in the technology integration business. You know, we're, they'll, you know, they'll think we're technology integrators, but I find myself talking them out of technology and some people don't want to hear that. They, they want to do the fun thing. Well, and they may have pressure from the purchasing entity. Hey, we bought you these devices. Now you better show that they're, they're using them in class. Well, yeah, there's, there's the, so there is the, what, what looks like a big deal in the classroom. You know, if you take a picture of it versus, you know, the, a kid writing and writing a narrative about their book review and then speaking it out, I think is harder to show. Yeah. Getting to the underlying sort of what process are we trying to engage the students in? Why do we want them to engage in that process? And then how can technology assist do we even need technology to assist? I think is sort of the key question. And so I think you're doing your job. You needed me to tell you that, right? You're doing your job as a technology integrator. If you are integrating technology when appropriate, but advising against sort of the extra layers of difficulty or sort of extra hoops, if it's not serving the goal. Thank you so much, both of you for joining. We really could talk about this forever. And I I hope that we can have another conversation in the relatively near future, whether it be for your podcast or for ours. Um, But yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining us this time. And we'll talk to everybody later. You bet. This was great. Thank you. And and thank you all for your insight too. I, we really appreciate what you bring to the table when we're thinking about education and, and research. Totally. Thanks. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.